Good morning, friends. It's the Drive to School podcast. I am Pastor Goodman, and my buddy David Zills, the apologist, is back. How you doing, man? I am doing well. I was patio dining this weekend in February in Ohio. So, I mean, like, I can't complain. Now, I mean, it's kind of the weather's crappy now, but, you know. You, that's that's actually the worst part about spring in the Midwest is that like, you get that one day, and it only takes one day of, of, like, halfway decent, and then you're like, no, no all of this is awful. Everything is terrible. <laughs> I don't much. like it anymore. Um, and so then you have to deal with another, you know, month or two while it sorts itself out. Yeah. Can I blame the, 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 the groundhog? I'm blaming something, man. Cause this is unacceptable. I want to speak to the manager. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe sometime we can talk about the moral argument for God's existence. I feel like this is one of those injustices that just begs to be corrected, you know? It, okay. it, it is it's it's suffering yeah on the grand scheme <laughs> there's natural disasters in midwest spring um, <laughs> all right that was really dry it's gonna be a good day i can already tell <laughs> all right so we have been talking about the resurrection of our lord uh which which is a pretty important thing paul says if christ has not been raised from the dead we are above all people to be pitied um and so we we put a lot in this thing uh we, we talked last time uh, about all of the people that, that supposedly interacted with Jesus after the resurrection, all the claims that are made, but like, what if they saw something else? You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is, there's always this two-step argument when uh, apologists typically defend the resurrection. There's first, what are the facts? And second, how do we explain the facts? And so, um, just references for people who want to fact check me. This a one's a little book. this one's it's a, a little book. thick, but <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus by Mike Lacona. Um, that's a good one. And then Reasonable Faith by William Len Craig. He uh he's another big got, book. Yeah, he's got two doctorates. Um, and he, like he he goes through talking about how do we know God exists? And I skipped that stuff because it was really technical and I'm not a scientist or philosopher, but when we got to the history stuff, I was like, okay, this is good. And he has a chapter on the resurrection, which is one of his specialties. And that was interesting, but for something that's a little more, um, something to ease into, this is a good one. Uh, the case for the resurrection of Jesus also by Mike Lacona. And I think his, uh, mentor Gary Habermas, who's the lead expert on this topic. So they're kind of the the two that spearhead one of these big arguments and, and the, the the approach is we have facts and then we have explanations for the facts and so the the big fact that Mike Lacona uses is these resurrection appearances to Jesus disciples and then to Paul and he also mentions the appearance to James which we can talk about um, we know from the Gospels that Jesus brothers did not believe in him as the Messiah or anything like that during his lifetime. And then we know from one of Paul's letters that they do after Jesus is crucified. So, you know, if you're, if you think my brother's a little crazy, he's, he thinks he's something when he's just my big brother and then he's crucified. It's not going to make you think, Oh, maybe there was something to it. Maybe he really was the Messiah. <laughs> so, so, so what changed their minds? And, and at least in the case of James, we talked about 1 Corinthians 15 um, last time, and Paul says he appeared to James. And the consensus is that this is James, the brother of Jesus, and that this is the reason why James becomes kind of the king of the Jesus freaks, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus is crucified. So um, James was a skeptic who was converted 
because of something he interpreted as a resurrection appearance of Jesus bodily risen from the dead. And then Paul was not just a skeptic, but an enemy. He said, Jesus was a deceiver. We got to keep Israelites from being deceived. We're going to stamp out this movement, even if we have to use violence. So Paul was beyond skeptical. And, uh, and then he became a Christian because of something he interpreted to be a resurrection appearance of the bodily risen Jesus. And um, Paul is, uh, there, there's bigger consensus on Paul. James, there's also, uh, most of the people who comment on it will say, yeah, James, uh, James had this experience and it's why he converted. But Mike Lacona doesn't make it one of his core facts. He makes it a secondary fact simply because there are fewer scholars that comment on James compared to Paul. But you have all these appearances, and I remember listening to a debate. Uh, it was uh, unbelievable with uh, this British guy, Stephen Breyer, or somebody Briarly. Um, and he just he, he has these debates where he brings in someone from one point of view, someone from another point of view. Sometimes they're within Christianity theological debates. Sometimes they're between different religions like Islam and Christianity or like Christianity and an atheist. And one of these, there was a guy who was, was the, the, the topic was the resurrection and the appearances got brought up and the, the skeptical guy said, I don't care. I remember there was this time, I think he was in an airport and he said, this woman looked, hey, it's Jesus. And she was pointing at a photograph and he said, there was nothing there, but she was convinced Jesus was there. And so, um, you know, people see things, they, they hallucinate, they're delusional. And so isn't it a lot easier since we know people hallucinate to just take that as an explanation than to go as far as say someone rose from the dead, which never happens um, in the way that they believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so this is kind of the challenges. It's a a choice between are these subjective and imaginary, meaning they're inside their brains, their brains were tricking them. Peter was like, oh, Jesus is there, but he's not really there. His brain's trying it playing a trick on them and same with everybody else or the alternative is they're not in their brains they're coming from actually outside in the world in which case jesus is really there in which case he rose from the dead so that's the choice we have and so what we want to do is we want to look at the subjective imaginary hypothesis and say does it does it fit the data Mm -hmm. the data that we have about these appearances so like one or two people might maybe see Jesus in the grilled cheese sandwich or Jesus like walking around. Um, but it was more than one or two. I saw Jesus on TV. I mean, it was an actor, but okay, that's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. So the way we can think about this, uh, I think there are two ways that I want to address this. One is, and this is borrowing, especially from William Lane Craig and Mike Lacona, the, the two counterpoints to the the hallucination or subjective imaginary hypothesis. One is we have to look at the statistics of hallucinations. How we know from psychology and psychiatry that hallucinations work and see if that fits what we know about what happened in the case of Jesus followers and Paul and James. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we want to do is we want to look at what were these people's expectations? Because you know the power of suggestion is powerful. Yeah. So was there some suggestion in their mind that would have given them this idea that would have kind of planted the seed of the hallucination or this imagination? And so those are the two ways I want to address this. So um, 
Can we dive into the the statistics of hallucinations? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, Mike Lacona does some research and he says about 15% of people will have a hallucination once in their lifetime, which is, I mean, not, not a small amount, but this isn't, this isn't an exact estimate, but I thought, what's, what are the odds? We know that there were appearances to groups mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, we know that there were at least 11 people on at least one occasion. So I thought, what well, if I pick 11 people at random, what are the odds that all of them have a hallucination at some point in their life using this 15%? And the same and, hallucination too. Well, we'll get to that. We'll okay. To that. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get to that. I'm just... I, I'm yeah, just saying no. in general, what are the odds of this of this coincidence? And um just running the odds, 15 percent engineer stuff here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to use my PhD in statistics, uh, and uh, it comes out to about one in a billion, which is uh not not very likely, but also think about it. There there have been more than a billion people that have lived. And so mm-hmm. And also the other thing is that that's that calculation assumes that these people were chosen at random and the disciples were, it wasn't a prospective double blind randomized trial like statisticians like, but it just kind of gives a sense for, okay, we're dealing with stuff that's not very likely, but can we go farther? So yeah, let's talk about group hallucinations. Mm. So there are two kinds, it's important to define what we mean by a group hallucination. And there are two main definitions, and I like to call them um, simultaneous hallucinations and shared hallucinations. Mm-hmm. So simultaneous means there are a bunch of people in the si- in the same place at the same time hallucinating, but they're having their own hallucinations. And so, um, you know, if you think about it, a hallucination is in your head. So if someone else is having a hallucination, that's in a different brain. So they're different hallucinations. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not going to synchronize. And so that's the first kind. It's simultaneous. You're hallucinating so, separately, but at, at the same time in the same place. Yeah. So everybody drops acid at Woodstock and there's a whole bunch of people out there tripping when they stare at the lasers, but they, they all see different things. Right. And so if, if we look at the, the research on this there, yeah, these things can happen. They're rare, but they're possible. Um, rare but possible. So what about shared hallucinations? That's when I'm having a hallucination and you're having a hallucination at the same time and place and our hallucinations are the same experience. And um, this is something that uh, Lacona quotes a psychiatrist who has studied this and he surveyed a huge body of the literature in psychiatry and psychology and he could not find a single example of a shared hallucination, which makes sense because that's not how hallucinations work. They're my brain, your brain. They're all things that are private to each of us. They're not shared. And so the question is, what kind of hallucination would this have to be in the case of the disciples, say the 11? And I think we have reason to believe that if this was a hallucination, it would have been the really, really hard to get kind, the shared kind. Why do we know that? We from the apostolic witness, their their teaching after this, they seem to have believed that they all experienced the same thing. And right. in particular, think about it. I'll I'll get to their expectations, but they were not expecting either from everyday experience or from their Jewish theology. They were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. So if they have a hallucination, they might conclude one of two things. They might be like, 
oh, I hallucinated. Or they might be like, hey, I saw something. And then someone's going to say, bro, you hallucinated. You need yeah. to get some, you need to get some rest. Or maybe they'll conclude, I saw Jesus, but they're not going to conclude he's bodily risen. They're going to say, because of their worldview and just everyday experience, they're going to say, Jesus appeared to me spiritually. They're not going to say he bodily rose from the dead. So for them to be convinced that Jesus had bodily risen from the bodily risen from the dead and appeared to them in real space-time, you know, an actual reality, mm -hmm. these would have had to have been shared hallucinations. And while simultaneous hallucinations are rare but not impossible, I don't know if we know of any examples of shared hallucinations. We can even go a step further because there, there are modes of hallucinations, which basically says which senses are involved. And you can have single mode hallucinations like visual, you see something, or auditory, you hear something. But you can sometimes have multi-mode hallucinations, meaning multiple senses are kind of telling you a same, playing the same trick on you. So you see Jesus and you hear Jesus. And Thomas had the opportunity to touch Jesus and one of the women had the opportunity to touch Jesus' feet. So we have three different senses, two or three different senses involved here. And the thing about multimode hallucinations is among the overall um, set of hallucinations that happen, the multimode kinds are rare. So when you put shared hallucinations with multimode hallucinations together, this is not a hallucination that is known to happen. And so if it's, if we're going to say, I can't believe the miracle that Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to believe in another miracle, which is that we had a really crazy kind of hallucination that isn't known to happen. And so that's why I've heard it said, pick your miracle, which miracle makes more sense in the context of everything else we know about Jesus. In particular, we've talked about his miracles, which people are still doing today. And the fact that he claimed to be God and seemed to have a character that lines up with it. And so that's the first way to address this theory is that when, based on what we know about when things ha happen in people's brains and their brains play tricks on them, this is not the way it looks. What this looks like is something that really happened. Yeah, you you kind of, that I'm painted in a corner here. I can't poke at this anymore. You win. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, Second thing is, what were their expectations? And this is also important because what's, the power of suggestion can either predispose you to imagine something or predispose you to not imagine something. So we have to look at where were their expectations. Um, and, and first, there are their expectations from everyday life. Do people come back from the dead? It's pretty... I, I can point a, a, a one little period in history that I read a book about it but uh, <laughs> yeah well I, I think it depends what you mean because there are resuscitations that you can have people okay. clinic clinically dead on the operating table and maybe they have some kind of near-death experience we hinted at those in an earlier mm -hmm. podcast where people experience things and people are able to fact check it and be like yeah that's true and there's no way they could have known that so somehow it seems mm -hmm. like their their seed of consciousness, call it their soul, was somewhere out there while their body was like clinically dead. But was that what would have happened with Jesus? We talked about if Jesus resuscitated in the tomb, he would have been in really bad shape. And if he did appear to the disciples, they would have been like, oh, you resuscitated. That can happen. Maybe not really likely in the case of this crucifixion, but 
theoretically, but they wouldn't have concluded he had bodily risen forever for all time, triumphant from the grave. And so that's not the kind of resurrection we're talking about. So do people rise triumphant from the grave in everyday life? No, no. And so from every day, like this is not something they would have expected. People sometimes talk as if people in Bible times were really gullible. They believed all sorts of crazy things, but that's not what you see when you read these, the accounts. I mean, the women come back from the empty tomb and and in Luke 24, verse 11, they tell the apostles, and we know that from Matthew and John, some of them even had these their own experiences of Jesus and how do the disciples respond? They say, you're, you're crazy. So people give Thomas a bad rap because the 10 male disciples told Thomas, we saw Jesus and Thomas is like, you're crazy. But this is not fair because they all did it. The women came to them and said, the tomb's empty. And they probably said they shared their experiences of interacting with Jesus alive, which I mean, I would if I saw that. I think I would think that was interesting. And the <laughs> and the and, and the male disciples are like, you're full of it. Yeah. So and I mean, we talked about women weren't particularly credible, and so I think the word in Luke is they they considered it an idle tale, like oh, those crazy women. You know, women mm. sadly were not deemed as um, credible, and um, there was not a high view of them in that society. Yeah. So, so these, these people were not gullible. They had to be convinced. They knew the facts of life, just like you and I did. But what about their theology? Was there some kind of Jewish superstition that would have planted this seed? What did, because Jews did, some Jews believed in the resurrection from the dead of the kind that Jesus was. So would this have planted the seed? And there are some reasons why this is also not the case, because what Jew, if you look at what Jews believe from what we know about their writings, about the general resurrection, there were two aspects of it that would not have been anything like what happened to Jesus or what was claimed happened to Jesus. First of all, the resurrection was at the end of time, not at some point in the middle of history when people kept living and life kept going on as normal for everybody else. That was not a category in Jewish theology. Mm. Second of all, the resurrection was of either all the people or all the people who are right with God, not an isolated individual. So the disciples, even from their Jewish theology, they would, they would not have been saying, oh yeah, Jesus is going to come back in three days. No, they'd yeah. say, we'll see Jesus at the end of time when we all come back, but that's as far as it would go. And we see this in John's account of when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, not permanently, but it was after four days and it was pretty remarkable it got a lot of people's attention. It got some attention. Yeah. Yeah. And he says to Martha on his way into the town, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again on the, the last, last day. day. And so that's when, when you say rise again to a Jew, they're going to say, well, yeah, on the last day mm -hmm. when everybody does. And so there's, there's nothing in Jewish theology or everyday experience that would have suggested this to them, which is what we see. We see they're skeptical. The women are confused. The men are incredulous. Thomas is incredulous. Not to mention that, but James and Paul are either skeptical or totally opposed. Right. So these are not people who had the suggestion that this might happen. And yet they experienced these things and it changed their lives. And one final point about the expectations um, Josh McDowell makes this point in more than a carpenter, I think. He says, you might die for a good cause. You know, we've talked about how many mm -hmm. of the disciples were willing to die 
for Jesus. Well, you're willing to die for a good cause. Okay, yeah. lots of people are. But the point about Jesus was their cause was dead. You know, you look at you look at what when people say I'm the Messiah and then they get crucified, what do you conclude? I guess they weren't actually the Messiah. And so people sometimes will speculate, well maybe Peter felt guilty for denying Jesus and he was and to and he couldn't believe Jesus was dead and so to reconcile all this in his angst he conjured up a hallucination but it's equally fair to say maybe he concluded wow instead of him letting Jesus down maybe Jesus let him down because some messiah he turned out to be and so you put all these things together there's not going to be an expectation to plant this seed. In fact, the expectation is going to go against what they experienced, which is right. why it takes them a long time to believe. You know, is it Luke or John that says Jesus gave them many convincing proofs? It's because he had to, because they weren't going to just believe this, just like you and me. And so you put together their expectations from everyday life, from Jewish theology, from the fact that the Messiah was the so-called Messiah was crucified. And then you look at the statistics of hallucinations. This is this theory that it was subjective and in their brains. It doesn't fit the facts of how we know hallucinations and imagination works. Right. And so if that's not true, the alternative is, well, this was not just in their brains. This was it real. They was. had to be, they had to be convinced and they were convinced. So maybe there's something to this. And it's, it's like, you know, they say, pick your miracle. And maybe it seems like an arbitrary choice. You know, well, there's one miracle, that's a fluke. There's another miracle, that's a fluke, 50-50. But we've talked about context with miracles, how context is everything. And the key with miracle, is there a context where you would think God would act? Is there a context surrounding the events where you might suspect a supernatural agent to intervene and with Jesus, if if the arguments which are independent of this, that he's God, hold up, and if God is crucified, it's reasonable to expect that something unusual might happen after that crucifixion, you know, that God wouldn't stay dead. And so that's where the crucifix the the deity of Jesus, which we made arguments for, and the resurrection of Jesus really go hand in hand. The deity of Jesus allows the resurrection of Jesus to make sense and not be like freak Elvis sightings that are just like, well, that was weird, probably not real, but like, because I have no way to make sense of it. <laughs> right. Likewise, the resurrection of Jesus um, re reinforces the deity of Jesus, because if Jesus rose from the dead in a way that wasn't just a resuscitation, but a, re but a return as someone immortal, and that's a testable thing, and we can say, yeah, that, that actually, the data fits that, then that reinforces his claim to be God. And so when you look at these miracles, it's all of them together coinciding in a single person, Jesus of Nazareth, that allows us to conclude, yeah, there might be something special about Jesus. Yeah. I, uh, I, I got nothing left to poke at. Uh, you still win. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll let the audience decide. Maybe they'll have some feedback and poke some questions at us. I'd love that. Uh, if you have any questions, drop them in the comments, but, uh, otherwise, David, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Have a good one. You too.